Welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Sudendell. Today I'm speaking with Mark Holt, who is a trainee nurse associate, but also the son of Steve Holt. And he saved his life, I think it's about 18 months ago now. So welcome, Mark. Hello, Paul. And how are you doing? Uh, not so bad on this great, drizzly Manchester day. Is this ever any other weather in Manchester? <laughs> I'm sure there are sunny days. Occasionally, occasionally. But no, it's 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 good to talk. I mentioned you know, you're a trainee nurse associate, but I understand you've got a bit of a, a health background and that's sort of intertwined with your family's background as well. Perhaps yeah. you could sort of tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I've kind of... I've never really been able to escape healthcare. My mum was an intensive care nurse and my dad was a surgeon. He's now retired. A lot of mine and my sister's childhood was brought up around that. So mum and dad both working and sometimes we'd go into the hospital and sit in one of the offices while they were both working. It probably wouldn't be allowed now, that sort of thing. Yeah, always kind of had that background and interest in it um i've also had quite a few health problems as a as a child i've had a heck of a lot of brain surgery which has fortunately gone very very well i now work in healthcare and have done for the last 15 years i've worked in mental health care in secure mental health services palliative care we're both with adults and children in the community at the moment i'm on my nurse associate training program and what does that mean? It sounds a very challenging role, what you've got there, but what is a nurse, trainee nurse associate and why are you doing that now? It's it's a relatively new role, the nurse associate role, and it's kind of halfway between a healthcare assistant and a registered nurse. You'll still be on a professional register, as a registered nurse would be. They developed it to bridge the gap between healthcare assistants and registered nurses because they realise that healthcare assistants are actually doing, I think, about 80% of the bedside work with patients. So we, we needed a path for training and development and regulation as well because previously it was a bit of a dead-end role sometimes being a healthcare assistant. There was no roots for progression, so to speak. And the advantage with this course is... You're paid as an apprentice, if you will, so you're salaried, whereas the conventional routes into nursing at the moment, you're paying your nine grand a year or whatever it is, tuition fees, but still working 40 hours a week on a ward. So there's an incentive there. So is is the ultimate aim to become a a fully registered nurse? Yeah, yeah. This program's good because every few months you rotate – onto different specialties so I've done general medical my last placement was a brain injury unit rehabilitation unit so uh, yeah it's uh, it's been good so far but at the moment I'm off yeah you mentioned that you had your own health issues yeah. and I imagine how going through a lot of brain uh, surgery you mentioned that that must have been uh, quite something and to be able to give back in the way that you do is is pretty amazing especially working in a a brain injury unit yeah all all I'll say is I'm just incredibly lucky to live in a country where you can get these things done due to the 
fantastic NHS that we have. It's it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a heck of a lot better than a lot of health services around the world. Indeed. So you said your father, who is the main protagonist in this story, <laughs> is a retired surgeon. What was his life like prior to his cardiac arrest? So dad was fit and healthy. He was a keen foul runner. I dare say it, that was kind of his stress-relieving mechanism. So rather than sort of drinking, gambling and all the other vices, his, his vice was going for a run in the in the rain and the snow and the ice in, in the Peak District where he lives. He, he worked long, hard days, plus doing on-call, so getting called in in the middle of the night to do operations and such like. And he retired... And his, his retirement was well-deserved. It's just a shame that he unfortunately got quite poorly after his retirement with his heart, which is why we're here. It's a common story, actually, I hear, that people work hard throughout their lives and then they retire and either they, they don't get much further or they end up with health uh, issues and they can't enjoy their retirement. It's such a shame. Yeah, it is. It's... Uh... It does make you think, is it worth carrying on working forever and ever? Yeah. So your dad's cardiac arrest, the first, because I believe he's had two, was February last year? Yeah, it was the 8th of February on our annual boys weekend away in the lake. So myself, him and one of his mates, Simon, he'd come over from, he lived in Scarborough, and we'd tackle the Cumbrian Fells for a few days, staying in a very nice pub just outside of Coniston. On that day, on the 8th of February, we'd, Dad had picked me up on, on his way, picked me up in Manchester. We'd driven up, we'd had some spot of lunch and a drop of coffee in a lay-by, parked up at the pub and then set off and walked up the old man of Coniston and back. And which is quite a challenge, isn't it? It it is for me, not for him, because he's like a mountain goat who just <laughs> runs up these things. So we got we got back to the place we were staying at, and for some inexplicable reason, Dad decided, "Oh, I want to go for a run because clambering up a fell isn't enough, is it?" Unfortunately, I'd possibly intentionally forgotten to bring my running gear, so he trotted off on his own, um, was gone for about half an hour or so, came back up to the room, was chatting to me about, we were talking what we were going to have for dinner. This pub does excellent food and has an excellent beer selection as well. So we were discussing that. And then rather rudely, Dad stopped talking and collapsed to the floor. And had, had he had any prior sort of symptoms or anything? Felt unwell? or Not was at his... all. I mean, I think about 12 months ago, he'd had an episode of funny feeling in his chest, which they investigated and said he'd had a, a small heart attack, if you will, and they'd decided to medically manage it using the usual statins and I think they put him on a blood thinner and whatnot but other than that his cardiologist had said you can still run just not competitively so he said well fair enough I'll I'll stick with that but on the day in question no there was absolutely no hint of him being unwell he had no chest pain he, he had no sort of 
dizziness or headache or anything like that. And he had just done a, a decent walk up a mountain and then a run. So, yeah. so obviously in fine feckle. Yes, absolutely. So here you are in in a pub in the in the Cumbrian or Lake District countryside. I can't imagine there's probably uh, a load of people there, fairly isolated, is it? That's it. I mean, this place, it's a little place called Torva, which is just outside of Coniston, and there's literally two pubs, a church and a farm. There's very little there. So, But amazingly, this pub had an AED strapped to the wall outside. What's the story behind that, do you know? The landlady, her son, had died of a cardiac event some years prior, and I think partially due to the isolation of the place, they realised that having an AED might be a handy thing to have with hindsight. Because um, your nearest ambulance, I mean, the, I've since learned that one of the nearest ambulances was over 25 miles away that came to us. So that just shows how much an AED would be beneficial. So so I really quickly realised that Dad was very, very unwell. He was he was still breathing, albeit agon, agonal breathing, which is pretty much textbook in cardiac arrests. So I abandoned him, albeit briefly, ran downstairs to the bar, shouted at one of the bar staff, my dad's collapsed ran back upstairs and flipped him over onto his back, got straight on his chest doing chest compressions. More staff had come up from the pub. I asked them to get the defib because I'd spotted it on the wall outside. We'd stayed at this place before and we'd seen it. It's quite prominent. Which is a good thing, really, because, you know, I've seen a number of locations where they have a defib, but they're almost embarrassed of it and, and they sort of hide it away or stick it in a back room, something like that. If you've got one, you, you've got to put it somewhere prominent so that people like yourself, can, if you see it and you remember it, it could save your life. It's, it's possibly one of the nicest defib storage facilities I've seen. It's built into a dry stone wall. <laughs> oh, actually, I remember you, you you posted a picture of it, didn't yeah. you? And it it looked a very temporary sort of cover on it with a yeah. couple of plastic sheets over it. Uh, I mean, in the winter they bring it inside, but uh, so yeah. So I was busily bouncing away on Dad's chest with gusto, um, quite a bit of gusto it turned out because his surgeon, when he had his bypass, said it made him right mess of his sternum. But um, made things easier for him anyway because it was already half cut. So then asked one of the staff, just cut his top off whilst they were still doing chest compressions. And then I got one of the other staff to take over the compressions. The poor woman looked absolutely shell-shocked whilst I set up the defib on him. Thankfully, and I'm so glad about this, it was a shockable rhythm he was in because... If it'd been a non-shockable rhythm, I'm sure you know the outcome's much, much worse. So it administered one shock, went straight back on his chest, did another couple of minutes of CPR, and then he was back in the room, as they say, albeit very, very agitated and this very sort of earnest and gently spoken man was suddenly very aggressive and quite sweary. Yes, I've heard that. I, I believe I was like that as well. But it's, I think it's um, 
a testament to the fact of your your swiftness that you you got him back so quickly yeah. that he was still still in a, a shockable rhythm because it it can deteriorate can't start yeah. off with a shockable rhythm and what i've learned as well is it's really important not to interrupt those compressions so keep on the chest while someone else is putting the defib pads on don't come off the chest get the pads on keep at it keep at it as much as you can because it's just keeping that oxygen going to the brain. So, yeah. How long do you think he was actually down for before he was, you, he you was, got him back? He was down for five minutes, if that, which was pretty pretty remarkable, really. If they hadn't, if the staff hadn't have been so great in helping out and they hadn't had that defect, it would have been an entirely different story. They were fantastic, because there's no way on earth I could have done that on my own. And you said, well, you, we know you're uh, out in the middle of the country. How long did it take for the ambulance to get to you? It was about 15 or 20 minutes. Um, once Dad had got an output back, I then rang 999 again just to update them, if you will, just to say, look, this is this is where we're at, just for if they needed to allocate different resources or whatnot, because they were still expecting him to be in full arrest. We um, missed out on a helicopter ride because it was too windy, unfortunately, which uh, we're still irked about. It would have been quite fun. Possibly nicer than the half-hour, very bumpy, very windy journey to Barrow Hospital in Cumbria. When the paramedics got there, what was their um, response and and what did they do? They, They were great. I mean, the first, it was a single advanced paramedic who turned up first, um, and he was he was a bit thrown at first because I handed my dad over to him as I would do any patient in work. So we've got a 67-year-old gent here who's had a sudden witness collapse, uh, found to be in arrest. He's had two minutes of CPR. He's had a single shock and a further two minutes of CPR. And he's now got what's called a ROSC, a return of spontaneous circulation, um, and he's a bit agitated and confused. By the way, he's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> And what did he say then? He said, um, well, he said, well, well done you. I wasn't expecting that. So the room was a bit of a mess, as you can imagine. So I'd had to tip the bed up to get room to get to that and whatnot. And then more paramedics came in the room as the minutes went by, at which point I left the room for a bit just to give them some space to stabilise Dad. Then... I had the horrible task of trying to get hold of my mum on the phone. And as is always the case in this situation, the phone doesn't answer. So my poor mother had about 20 missed calls by the time she saw it, at which point she's thinking something's awry. So I eventually got to speak to my mum and I said, listen, Dad's not so well, he's got to go to hospital. And she said, he's arrested, hasn't he? Yes. Yes, yes, he has. <laughs> but he's conscious and breathing and whatnot. I mean, my poor sister, I simply told her that my dad had had a funny turn. Um, <laughs> but she was, in my defence, she was heavily pregnant at the time. And not being from a healthcare background, I didn't want to scare the bejesus out of her. So I think that's probably a wise move. So where did they have to take him to well, the hospital? They had a. they were having a debate over where to go because Dad hadn't had a sort of traditional 
myocardial infarction, so he wasn't going to be a candidate to go to a centre where they do angiography and whatnot and stenting. So they decided to take him to Barrow and Finesse, which I don't know if you know Barrow, but it's uh, it's a pretty small town which used to have a huge shipbuilding industry, but a lot of that's gone now. So it's quite uh, quite small and I think it feels like quite a downtrodden town. But I have to say, everyone we met there was just fantastic. Really, really friendly, really, really helpful. So we had this 30-minute journey and the back of the ambulance, during which time my dad was really, really quite sick. I wasn't feeling great either because I get terrible travel sickness and I don't know whether you've been in the back of an ambulance whilst not post-cardiac arrest, but they're very bumpy. So I sort of found myself helping the paramedic out, setting up fluids and whatnot, um, and trying to keep Dad as settled as we could. Um, they took Dad into recess and I sort of checked him in at reception and whatnot and then just hung around waiting whilst getting phone calls from sort of family members who'd obviously heard what had happened. Also, Dad's mate, Simon, he... I've managed to get hold of him. He was meant to be joining us that evening for some tea and then to go walk in the next couple of days. And he said, nope, I'm coming anyway. So he, bless him, he drove all the way from the east coast of England to the west coast of England. So so at the hospital, what happened there? Presumably they did some tests and yes. kept, kept there for a while? Yeah, so they kept Dad in hospital for a good few days. They decided he was going to need a bypass. The local centre was Blackpool, but Dad's preference, if possible, was to have it done in Sheffield, which is where he'd had all his angiography done when he had that small heart attack, if you will. So there was a lot of toing and froing, but eventually they organised the transfer to Sheffield, and he he had a bypass done there, a startling recovery. He was to all intents and purposes, absolutely fine. Yeah, he did He did really, really well. I mean, it was just, it was really, really scary for us all because I think, I think as well, ignorance is bliss. I think so for the likes of me and my mum and my dad as well, you know the potential for things to go horribly wrong. It's funny, someone said to me, a lot of the time when people get a pulse back, it's fantastic and medals time kind of thing whereas we know that a lot of the time that's not the end of it by a long chalk so yeah he did he did really really well so so it's put down as perhaps having another heart attack or, uh, is it because of coronary yeah um, yeah he had disease? he had quite a bit of disease in i think they call it the widow maker artery or left anterior descending artery i think it's called yeah, he made a he made a cracking recovery, but then, at sort of towards the end of his recovery from that, he had another arrest where my sister and my mother did the deed. He likes to stress you out, doesn't he? Your family. It's it's attention seeking behaviour. Myself and my mother tell him he he can't cope with us going away somewhere for a nice time without him being the centre of attention. We've decided. <laughs> 
So, so the first one was in February, beginning of February, and then wh- when did he get his bypass, and when did this next one happen? His bypass was a couple of weeks after that, sort of towards the end of February, from what I remember, and then his second arrest was the twenty second of May. Whereabouts is that? That was they were in. They'd gone to the trough of Bowland near Preston to stay in a nice holiday cottage and. Again, there was a running element to it. So he'd been for sort of his first gentle run with my mum and my sister. It was just doing his sort of cool down exercises when he got in and down he went. But this time he smashed his head open and sustained quite a nasty head injury, losing a heck of a lot of blood. So, my, I mean, me and my mum joke now. My mum says that was a proper arrest because there was blood loss and, and it was a much longer downtime. He was down for near enough 15 minutes, I think. Whereas with me, it was a fairly amateurish affair. <laughs> my mum and my sister were doing continuous CPL. My poor brother in law was trying to keep the kids in check. My parents' grandkids, who were both pretty young and find out where on earth they were. I mean, this holiday cottage was in the back of beyond. And when you stay in somewhere, you don't tend to know the postcode off the top of your head. So he he was running around like a mad thing, trying to find out where they were. But um, again, lots and lots of ambulance resources turned up and they got an output back on him after just one shock. And then I made my way up. I got a phone call from my brother-in-law whilst I was in handover at work for the early shift and just fell to pieces at that point, unfortunately. uh, That's not surprising. You're unlucky to have a cardiac arrest, but to survive it, you're you're very lucky. But to survive two of them, well, I I do know some people who've had two arrests without having an ICD and who have survived, but the odds of that must be quite low, I should imagine. Yeah, I mean, the current survival rate for out-of-hospital arrest fluctuates between 5 and 8% at the moment. So, and that's with a good outcome, so no residual brain damage and whatnot. So for Dad to survive that, particularly with the big head injury sustained on his second one, he's done incredibly well. What did they put the second one down to? Conductivity. So they then went and put in an ICD. Yeah, that's what and all that seems to seems to be doing the trick. So no no more running. No more running. Why is that? They seem to think that there's a correlation between when he's when he's when your heart rate gets quite high, which it will do with running, and when it's sort of settling down after the run you can develop some sort of arrhythmia. But he hasn't got any diagnosed sort of condition like, I don't know, Brigada or no, QT? No long, no, long QT or anything like that. Because um, I've done some reading around it and there is quite a lot of evidence to show that in people are people who are particularly fit and athletes, they can be prone to these to think it they say it initially will start up as an episode of VT but then converts into a VF which is when obviously things get a bit lively indeed there's, there's a whole book about that actually 
I can't remember who it is by a, a couple of American. I'm not sure if they're scientists, but they they run a magazine for sports or cycling. And that both, I think, two of them had a similar experience where they had been sporty and competitive all their all their lives, and then they developed uh, serious heart conditions. I think it was in their sixties, uh, and they looked into the sort of episodes of people who did sport long term and whether it was affecting their heart and i think there is more and more evidence that you know if you push yourself too much and you've got a certain set of conditions and parameters within your body and your physiology that you could be prone to uh, causing yourself problems yeah which is what makes it all the more sad really because of all the people you'd think my dad just wasn't that person that you'd think would have a serious cardiac episode. He's just super fit and the kindest man you could ever wish to meet. And it just seems incredibly unfortunate for him, but he's sort of mentally he's dealt with it incredibly well and all credit to the bloke. I mean, I, I did uh, remember reading on one of your uh, posts that you did that you said that he was uh, initially bitter and twisted and you know, very much the why me because I've led a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, well, he was on a ward full of fat smokers and you, you, can, you can understand that really. He's he's looked after his body for so many years, not gone out of his way to do it, but just his lifestyle is, and he, his body's been in good shape. So does he know why he experienced coronary artery disease? And is that a hereditary thing, or it, it might be? There's sort of his dad's got an Irish background and with some Icelandic bits in there as well, and I think it's quite a genetic predisposition plus one of his uncles he had a he had two arrests both due to coronary artery disease in fact he was one of the first people to ever be defibrillated out of hospital in Belfast which was where they had the UK's first defibrillator in the back of an ambulance it was Pantridge that's right yeah Frank Pantridge yeah yeah he's he's a bit of a character (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, unfortunately, he's dead. I'd love he to is, have yeah. to him. <laughs> he, he would have been cracking. A delinquent who was kicked out of school, but look what he accomplished. <laughs> That's it. Such a phenomenal thing. But So, yeah, there's obviously some sort of family history there. And it's, it's the old adage, you cannot change your genes, unfortunately. You can do everything else, but your genetics will stay with you forever. How's your dad now? Because we're eighteen months on, is he? Is he adjusted to life? He's fine. He's absolutely fine. I mean, at the moment, he's been really careful with regards to going out, and he's not going to the supermarket to do the food shopping, which immensely frustrates him because he loves cooking. But he's just just being careful. They're walking every day, him and mom, and yeah, he's he's doing absolutely grand. It's it's lovely to see. It really is. I know it can be very hard if you've done sport and activity all your life and then to be told that you're not allowed to do it anymore. How has he adjusted to that? Is is he finding being able to walk good enough? Yeah, he seems to have settled with that. Initially, it was really, really hard and he was quite resentful almost, I think, that he couldn't do that. 
but he's adjusted to it well. So he's lucky in that where he lives, the Peak District, there's plenty of lovely places to go walking every day. So, yeah, he's uh, he's doing well. and That's good to hear. A number of posts that you've done, and I've seen you comment quite a lot, is about the impact it, it had on you. Could you tell me about, I mean, the fact that you've worked in health industry as a carer and, and now as a nurse associate, and I think you mentioned that you had done CPR or attended a number of arrests prior to your, your father's. Can you tell me about those prior ones and how that compared to, to doing it on your father and the impact it had on you? Yeah, it's in hospital. It's it's lovely. You dial a magic number, and lots and lots of people come to you very, very quickly. You've generally speaking got all the equipment you need at the bedside, and people who know exactly what they're doing, and you know that they know what they're doing, which I think is a big help. When you're presented with your dead dad on a bedroom floor of a pub it is incredibly different but strangely I just went into an autopilot and I think I said I just detached myself and it was just another cardiac arrest and you just go through your chain of survival stuff which has been drummed into you over the years and you just keep going with that in hospital it's kind of good because certainly in my role I would never be expected to run the arrest in inverted commas it would always be a senior doctor or a senior nurse so you you're often just doing the chest compressions or assisting with ventilation or running about fetching and carrying things that are needed but in the situation with dad at the pub I was leading the arrest which was an unusual experience for me not one I particularly wish to repeat out of hospital, I must admit. A, a challenging experience, but the, by the sounds of it, you, you handled it very well. Yeah, quite worryingly, really, how able I was to just go into autopilot. But mum said the same, that she just went into work mode and you just do what you've got to do because CPR is pretty simple, really. It's not... It's nothing particularly complicated, which is what I think I've said to you before. It annoys me slightly when people say, oh, there's no way I could have done that. And you think, well, actually, anyone can do this, really, as long as they're able-bodied. It's, it's pretty simple to do. It is a simple skill, but it's knowing the the whereabouts to be able to put it into action as well. I mean, a lot of people would just panic or go into shock at that situation so it is having more than just that simple skill and i think if people hear from the likes of myself just how easy it is then that might give them that little bit of confidence to realize it's not that bad i mean for goodness sake the person's dead they're not going to get any better if you do nothing there is a chance they will get better if you do something Absolutely. And um, the people at the pub, you said they helped out a lot. Did this have a much of an effect on them? Because I think you've gone back and seen them, haven't you? Yeah, we've seen them since um, myself, Michelle, my partner, and stepdaughter Kim. We went up 
in February this year and had a spot of lunch there. And it was nice to see them in not quite as much of a fraught environment, if you will. I've since learned sort of who was who in everything because I'm sure you realise it all becomes a bit of a blur when all this chaos is going on. So, yeah, and I've apologised profusely to them several times for shouting at people and uh, being downright bossy. <laughs> I'm sure it was needed at the time, though. There was any any of the people who helped you, the lady who some was the cause of the AD being there? Yeah, she's uh, she she was there. I mean, she's the landlady of the place, and she was she was grand. She was absolutely lovely, and I've kept in touch with them. And hopefully, when all this lockdown business is over, we'll head back up there for at least a spot of lunch, if not a couple of days walking. Hopefully, they will have wiped off the chalk mark from the floor. <laughs> I mean, that, that must have been quite an experience for her, having lost her own son. Absolutely. Then, then to have something that she's gone on to give someone else another chance to actually come to fruition. It must be a, an amazing feel, a mixture of emotions, I imagine. Yeah, and I, I think these situations are, for everyone, a mixture of emotions. I certainly said it was it was utterly harrowing for me, but fantastic in another way as well because I saw Dad recover. And the same for the people at the pub, particularly Fran, the landlady, for her to see that this thing they've raised money for has actually done some good for someone. Because that was the first time it had been used in anger, so to speak. Do you know how long it had been there? Yeah, they'd had it a few, good few years. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's proved useful. And I'm a great believer that these things should be the same as fire extinguishers in public buildings. Every building should have one because they're so, so simple to use. Absolutely. You talked about the uh, the mixture of emotions and it was uh, quite horrific for you. I think you've also mentioned that you think you probably experienced uh, flashbacks and anxiety and possibly that you, you experienced PTSD. Can you sort of tell us about that? Yeah, I know from my line of work and being lucky enough to have friends and colleagues who are in the game that it's pretty normal. It's your your mind's way of adjusting to these things, but it's not very nice. But if you can just accept that this is how things have to play out while your brain processes all the information and the things that you've seen, the things that you've heard, I think it can help you rationalise it a little bit better. I certainly think that... Maybe not so much for the likes of myself who are quite used to these things, but for people who have never seen these sorts of things before, a structured debriefing might be quite beneficial for them. Otherwise, you're just left carrying all this anxiety with you. And certainly the flashbacks and nightmares and such like can become really debilitating for people. And we need to recognise that these People have not walked past the scene of someone lying on the floor and have chosen to get involved and help. So we should at least provide some sort of support for them. Absolutely. Have you had any support and have you had any support prior when you've done it as part of your job? No. And it's funny in the health service, we've kind of almost 
blasé about these things to some extent and it your support comes from your colleagues a lot of the time it's a sit down in the coffee room and a plumbing act that was a horrible job kind of thing and again for me support wise it's been my friends and my colleagues who've been a good support because a lot of my friends are either in medicine or nursing so they know what it's like albeit in the controlled environment of a hospital and it's been quite nice having that you can just offload to them i mean now it doesn't bother me at all it's one of those things but immediately afterwards sort of if an ambulance went past me with blue lights and sirens on it just turned into a gibbering wreck which uh, it's quite laughable now thinking about it but it just takes you back to that horrible moment it's a bit of a cliche but do, do you think time is a healer it is absolutely time is a healer and but it helps to have the right people around you if that makes sense have people to speak to what tips would you give to someone who's been in your position? What, how have you dealt with it? What, what's helped you? Don't bottle it up. Speak to people. If you're struggling, speak to somebody and acknowledge that this is a perfectly normal experience. Us men are rubbish about talking about our thoughts and feelings. I think we're the absolute worst for it. But it it doesn't help. You really must speak about how you're feeling and accept that, yes, what I've done and what I've witnessed is not the norm. And you you are entitled to feel pretty rubbish afterwards. Have you spoken with your father about it? Yeah, we've we've sort of had fleeting conversations, but it's usually intertwined with a bit of ribbing and Mickey taking, which is uh, pretty much how we go about things anyway. I was going to say, a lot of your comments you seem to mention and you just did there about humour in uh, dealing with those sort of scenarios. Is, is that prevalent in sort of the medical world? Yeah. It needs to be. It absolutely needs to be. Otherwise, you will fall to pieces very, very quickly. You see some really upsetting things. You need to take a step back from these things and just try and look on the brighter side of life and not try and make light of things because obviously these things are really, really profound, but to try and look at things with a different slant it's interesting after sort of dad's second arrest, I'd ended an attachment on a neuro rehab unit, a brain injury rehab unit, and there were quite a few patients on there who'd suffered hypoxic brain injury following out of hospital cardiac arrests, and that was quite hard to see because it just makes you realise just how close the likes of dad have come to been in that situation where their recovery is probably measured in years rather than weeks and months. And has going back to work and uh, have you had to do CPR and any other work scenarios and how's that been? Yeah, I, um, I've been to a couple of arrests and sort of really, really poorly patients where you thought they might arrest a couple of times since and the first one was a bit horrible and quite a white colour and started being a bit shaky, according to one of my colleagues. He didn't put it quite as eloquently as that, I must admit. And 
a couple of weeks after my dad's second arrest, ironically, I had to go on resuscitation training, which was just ridiculous. <laughs> so I did, just, did you pass? I did, I did. But I, I think the sort of stalling point was you all have to have a go at running an arrest. So there's six of you there. I mean, it was quite strange because one of the people there was a cardiothoracic anaesthetist. And then there's the likes of us lot who aren't quite as advanced as he is. So, yeah, the the falling point for me was the checking responsiveness. And for some reason, I shouted, Dad, wake up to this mannequin. (laughs) But, but yeah, it it was a bit horrible because there's certain noises and things that the monitors make that take you back to what's happened. But you just have to sort of accept that, yes, this is normal. Were they aware of your situation when you were doing that? Yeah, I, f- I fessed up at the beginning to the resuscitation training officer and said, listen, this is this is how things are. A couple of weeks ago, my dad arrested and he's doing all right now, but I resuscitated him a few months prior and this this might be a bit difficult for me. And he was fine. I mean, there, were, there was talk of just put your big boy pants on and crack on with it, but, uh, but no, they, they were fine and that's what's quite nice in healthcare. Everyone does support each other in these things. It is it is like a bit of an extended family. Well, that's good to hear. So moving on, how do you think we can make life better for people who are late rescuers in, in the future? We sort of touched on it a, a little bit. If you were a late rescuer and you didn't have any of your health background and you had to step in, what, what would you say was would look good what would be the gold standard for someone having a point of contact probably within the ambulance service where you could talk about your thoughts and feelings because i think particularly if it's not a ideal outcome from the cardiac arrest it can it can be really really hard for that person they can have a lot of what ifs in their head and did i do this right that kind of thing so if you've got someone who's knowledgeable and suitably skilled to support them and reassure them that they haven't done anything wrong, that can be a huge help for them. What about counselling and things like that? Yeah, I think that that does have a role. Just just having that that place to talk to somebody who's suitably qualified can help. I think. Some people like a formal counselling approach. Some people prefer an informal counselling approach. It depends on the individual. This is obviously in an ideal world. It's sort of without the financial constraints and all the rest of it. What about just in the qualification that you could speak to someone who's gone through exactly that same experience of you, i.e. the peers? Peer support is really, really helpful because you are able to sort of bounce your thoughts and feelings off with each other and I think it can be a huge huge help having a having a place where people can talk about what happened without fear of upsetting anyone such as their family or whatnot the forums that you've got the subcardiac arrest forums and the chain of survival ones are really really helpful for that it gives a, a sounding board for people if you will Exactly. And and I think it doesn't matter whether there's been a good outcome or not. I think people do need to talk about their experience and just learn 
what they went through is normal in that sort of situation or what they're going through is normal in that situation. I don't think I've got very many more questions or any more questions now. Have you got anything else that you'd like to add? No, no, just thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk and I hope it helps people just knowing that this this these things do happen but there is light at the end of the tunnel and thoughts and feelings do settle. But uh, yeah, the um, I just want to make sure that as many people as possible know what to do in the event of a cardiac arrest. I'm a, a strong advocate for maybe stra- scrapping trigonometry from the national curriculum and putting CPR in there instead. Because never in my life have I needed to know what the hypotenuse of a triangle was. You'll be getting your way because uh, it is going to be part of the curriculum from this September, assuming that kids go back to school in September anyway. Whether all of the schools are actually geared up to, well, not just going back, but being able to implement the CPR training anyway is, a, is another thing, really. Yeah, and I, I think it's helpful for the likes of kids as well if it's someone teaching them who's had some practical experience of these things because there's nothing worse than someone just reading off a PowerPoint or out of a booklet. They can bring a bit of life to these things. I think it's helpful for them because you're more likely to remember it if you can associate it with something that's happened. Absolutely. And uh, I understand that you did uh, done a little bit of that at a scout group. Yeah, um, they were really good. They were really receptive. And it's, it was just nice to send them on their way knowing that you'd sent them away with some skills that hopefully they will never, ever have to use. But if they do have to use them, they'll remember them. You can only hope. Hopefully the schools will be able to implement it as much as possible going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I want to emphasise to them as well is the breathing side of things because people get really sort of confused when they see that these people are often making some respiratory efforts the chest moving up and down, they're making the right noises to a certain extent. So that's uh, something I need to, the point needs driving home on, if you you will. The agonal breathing. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that can throw people, because the protocol says not breathing normally. Well, your average Joe probably won't know what normal breathing is. And an agonal breathing, how was it for your father? No, it was horrible. It's, it's a haunting noise. But uh, he, he continued throughout, and indeed we did reassure each other that at no point during his arrest did our lips meet. <laughs> Very good. The agonal breathing is, I think, a point they need to really drive home and that you don't necessarily have to ventilate people because I think that, again, throws people. They Obviously, a stranger's not going to want to do mouth-to-mouth on a stranger particularly, and that might put them off doing anything at all. Yeah, especially with COVID-19 around as well. Absolutely. I mean, certainly our guidelines are changing by the day now as to what you're meant to do in an arrest with COVID. Okay, it's been an absolutely brilliant session, Mark, and I'm really 
pleased to hear that both you and your family and your dad in particular are all doing great. So it's really good to hear. And there's some really good points you bring out about how we can help lay rescuers move on from the experience. And obviously, we do want more and more people to get involved and help out if uh, any of these situations arise. But we we got to be able to provide them with care afterwards as well. So thanks very much for, for sharing your experience. I know it's not always easy to do so, but I take my hat off to you for doing so. And thanks very much again. Thank you, Paul. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast, and I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the website southerncardiacarrestuk.org. And you can find us by Googling Southern Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider, such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest, on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe, and I'll speak to you next time.